We continue uh, today in our series called, Huh? Strange Stories in the Bible. And we move on to an intercession in Exodus 4, verses 24 through 26. And I'm actually going to do the reading. But before this, we were um, doing rock, paper, scissors um, to decide who would have to read this passage. <laughs> who would have to read this passage? Because, you know, there's certain things, certain words in here, a uh, certain F word in here. But, uh, what? What? <laughs> not that kind of F word. <laughs> but so I'm going to, that word will heretofore, heretofore, be replaced with buckskin. All right? Buckskin. So I'm going to read a buckskin. <laughs> so starting with verse 24. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. But Zipporah took a flint knife, cut off her son's buckskin, and touched <laughs> Moses with, with it. Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me, she said. So the Lord let him alone. At that time, she said, bridegroom of blood, referring to circumcision. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that your word um, speaks truth to us. Your word is alive and changes us. And there's mystery in your word. And there's often confusion about how we should interpret your word or um, apply your word or how to interpret the word. And so we confess our, our imperfection to you in that process, but also we come trusting in the Holy Spirit and we come to do our best and work with the text. In your name, amen. So I am a second generation Korean American, second generation pastor, which I didn't intend to be growing up. Um, and oh, my dad's not here, so I can just go, no. <laughs> second generation pastor and a second generation Korean American. My parents immigrated from Korea a long, long time ago. And um, bicultural. So basically that means at home, my parents spoke Korean to me. I ate Korean food. I ate kimchi. Um, at school, I spoke English, you know, and I learned more and more about people who did not have my background and, uh, or more about the American culture. And we moved around a lot growing up. So my background, like I, we grew, I was born in Hawaii. We lived in LA. Some of my formative years, elementary years and middle school were in Texas. Then we moved to Atlanta, Georgia. And so a lot of time in the South. And then I had to change my accent coming to Seattle where I ended up going to high school and then you know, a college, and then here I am. I consider myself a Northwesterner. Like, I never open my umbrella when it rains, right? I wear flip-flops in the rain, Northwesterner. But, uh, you know, growing up as a bicultural Asian-American, Korean-American, second generation, you know, you learn to flip the switch, right? You flip the switch, like, oh, I'm at home. My parents are strict. My friends used to come over and open the refrigerator or about to, you got anything to drink? And you'd be like, no, don't open the refrigerator. 
because they would then get like the waft of garlic, right? The waft of kimchi smell and be like, what was that? And so, and I'd be embarrassed, so I wouldn't invite my friends over, especially while we were living in Texas. Um, and, and then you learned like to turn the switch on at school, like wanting to assimilate, wanting to fit in. You speak a certain way, you talk a certain way, um, you act a certain way um, to be cool, to fit in, um, to be accepted. And so there's this bicultural switch. And in scripture, you see many of God's called ones, many of God's leaders who are bicultural. You think of Moses, right? First you think of Joseph, right? Hebrew, but grew up in the court, uh, went to the court of Egypt and succeeded in that place, so was able to have a feet in two cultures. You think of Moses, who we're addressing here in our passage. I shouldn't have put these mints in my mouth right before speaking. That's like, number one, don't do it. But let me chew it real quick. You can smell it. <laughs> it's my breath in your lungs. <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> stay on task. Um, what was I talking about? Bicultural. Bicultural. Moses, and when we were in the book of Acts, we uh, talked about Paul a lot, right? Paul, a Roman citizen, but also a Pharisee, right? The most zealous of Pharisees. So he grew up in two cultures, understanding two worlds, and could navigate um, in both worlds, a world of the empire and the world of, you know, the Jews and the law um, and all of that. And so very powerful when it came to God's heart, the Holy Spirit's movement of spreading the gospel beyond Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. So bicultural, bicultural. There's something in scripture about the bicultural leader able to speak different languages, able to navigate in different cultures because this person is a reconciler, right? One who reconciles two different worlds. So Moses, if you know, uh, if you start off in Exodus, Exodus 1 through chapter 3, you learn about the origin story of Moses, basically. You know, you have the origin story of different Marvel characters. This is the origin story of Moses. Um, Exodus begins with, um, if you remember, post-Joseph. So after Joseph, who brought his family into Egypt after being favored by the court of Pharaoh and gaining power in that court, invited during the famine his family into Egypt. Now, the Hebrews then began to expand. And the scripture says they were really prolific. They, you know, they made babies, basically. Babies, 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 babies. And so the Egyptians felt envy. They were jealous. They're like, man, they're so hardy and they're multiplying, they're flourishing. And so, as is the case in many countries and many, much of our history, when there are immigrants thriving, right, we tend to want to, like, shut that down. Like, that's too much. And so the Egyptians then enslave the Hebrews. They enslave them. And even to the point where as they're continuing to multiply, 
Pharaoh's like, man, we got we to gotta stop this. So he tells the Hebrew midwives, hey, anytime a male is born, a son is born, let me know because I want to get rid of them. And so there's this genocide that happens in Egypt where the firstborn son or the son, every son of the Hebrews are executed at birth. And so there's that history. Moses, if you know his story, you don't... You, you know about Moses in the basket in the Nile River, right? He was born under this persecution. His mother, fearing this and wanting him to survive, asked his sister, put him in this basket, put him on the Nile, and keep watch as he floats down the river. It so happened that that day, Pharaoh's daughter sees Moses floating and says, what a cute baby, such plump cheeks. Like, I want to adopt him. I want to keep him. And so she keeps him. And shrewdly, Moses' sister says, hey, I know a Hebrew midwife who can nurse this baby for you. Right? Can I go bring her? And she says, yeah, I'll do that. That's a good idea. So his sister goes and gets Moses' mother. So actually, Moses' mother nurses um, Moses and probably brought him up, was his nanny and stuff like that. So Moses actually grows up in the royal court of um, Pharaoh as as Pharaoh's daughter's son, basically adopted son, but is being nursed by his mother and probably has his first moments of intimacy and warmth and, oh, this is my mother figure, um, is his actual mom doing that. And so we can say that Moses is bicultural. And we don't know how much exposure Moses has to the Hebrews, to his original background. What we, the scripture doesn't say. But what we do know um, is that one day Moses witnesses an Egyptian beating on a fellow Hebrew. It says, the scripture says a fellow Hebrew. So to some extent, Moses is like, that's my peace. And, and, and some sort of anger raise, rises up in him, and he ends up killing the Egyptian. Later, two Hebrews are fighting, and he says, don't fight, don't fight. Why are you fighting? And one of the Hebrews says, who are you to be judge over us? We know, are you going to kill us just like you killed that Egyptian? And so Moses is like, oh, people know about what I did. I saw you last summer, right? People know what I did. (laughs) And Pharaoh finds out about what he did. And so Pharaoh's like, we got to take Moses out. And so Moses ends up fleeing out of Egypt uh, to the surrounding country of Midian. Um, You can look up Midian if you want to, um, later. But, so he's a Midian. It's not Egypt. Um, it's not Hebrew territory. It's just, it's Gentiles, right? Gentile land, essentially. And he helps seven daughters of Jethro out. And uh, basically, Jethro invites him home to eat dinner, and he marries Zipporah um, to be his wife, the Midianite woman. This is his uh, first wife. And so that's where the story picks up. Well, um, 
Another long story short is the burning bush, chapter 3, Exodus chapter 3. Moses, he's shepherding Jethro's flocks, sees a burning bush. It's burning but not being consumed. And so he goes and God calls him, right? God speaks to him. And we know from that interaction that Moses, God tells Moses, go back to Egypt and save my people, deliver my people. And Moses is like, when I go and tell your people this, what am I to call you, right? Who are you? And God says, you are, tell them I am that I am. I am has sent you the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, etc., etc. So God is essentially giving his identity, his name, and also the connecting Moses to the history, to the story of God's people and saying, this is what you tell them. And so this is where, well, there's a little more and then we pick up in our story. And this is one of the more difficult, uh, I mean, that's the theme of the series, right? Difficult passages in the Bible, strange passages in the Bible, um, because there's a lot of difficulty. There's a lot of textual issues in this. And the first thing is, we read from the NIV version, is the scripture, did I put the scripture there? Or is it not? Um, We read from the NIV version, I probably didn't put it in the slides. Um, And in the NIV version, it says, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him, but Zipporah took a flint knife, cut off her son's buckskin, and touched Moses' feet with them. So there's, you... You hear God, you hear Moses, you hear Zipporah, you hear son, right? There's, there's, but in the Hebrew, the actual language, there's only the personal, there's only the pronoun him, right? So you don't have any names. So what, what you may read is this, um, and you might have an asterisk next to Moses if you're, you have the NIV study Bible, uh, But this is how it literally translates. And it came to pass by the way in the inn, the Lord met him and sought to kill him. Then Zipporah took a sharp sharp stone and cut off the buckskin of her son and cast it at his feet and and said, Surely a bloody husband art thou to me. So he let him go. Then he said, A bloody husband thou art because of the buckskin removing um, so it's ambiguous. In the original translation, it's ambiguous. Uh, it's all him. So one of the questions that commentators, uh, let me increase my font here, just shrunk. One of the issues that the commentators deal with is who is the him? Who is the him? Because even the passage right before this, it doesn't specific, it isn't going from Moses to like this transition. So the him is carrying on from Moses. It's just him, 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 him. So is the him Moses? Who is God meeting and trying to kill? Is God trying to kill the son of Moses, Gershom? Uh, actually, Moses has two sons. So there's Gershom, his eldest, and then a younger son. Um, so even commentators argue about that. Was it the elder son? So it was about timing. Like he sh- the younger son just hadn't been done yet. So he should be doing it before the journey to Egypt. 
or he hadn't done any of his sons. He hadn't done the eldest son or the youngest, younger son. So is God trying to kill him, Gershom, or is God trying to kill Moses? So that's the first thing. We know that Zipporah, you know, obviously takes the flint knife to her son, but then the other, the next image of, and puts the, the buckskin at Moses' feet, or at his feet, is it placing it at the uh, feet of the son, or is it placing it at Moses' feet? And we know a lot of people feel contextually, since Zipporah is addressing Moses, surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. Moses is her groom, um, so she's therefore placing the buckskin at Moses' feet. Um, but that's an ambiguity in the text. And the text never tells us it's Moses or it's Gershom. The NIV makes that, makes that call for us. It makes an interpretive call. So it says, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him, Moses. But Zipporah took a flint knife um, and touched Moses' feet with it. Um, so there we have an interpretation. But we have to remember, like, that's a pretty sound uh, interpretation or sound take on things. But the text does not say that. The text does not say that. So, again, I almost entitled this sermon, I don't know. <laughs> like, who was it that God was trying to kill? I don't know. And sometimes we come to a place in Scripture where we just say, I don't know. I don't know. And as a pastor, with everyone looking at me and my mic on and my stand here and my MDiv, right, my Master of Divinity degree, I feel like it's my job to have the answers for everything, right? You guys are here looking for the answer. What does it mean? Sorry, I get paid to say, I don't know. <laughs> right? I don't know. I don't know. We can only work with the text and the context and make, right, make interpretations. And that lends to, there's mystery in Scripture, right? And we have to accept that there's mystery in Scripture or just things that we don't understand, things that we can't know in Scripture. We can come to conclusions together as a community and say, oh, that works for us. And the application out of that is this, right? Or like last week, either way, there's this application. Like either way, a boundary was crossed. So this is what we should take out of it. And this, what can we take out of this? Amen? One of the things in life, the life of Moses is one of my the things I've sat in for a long time, just specifically because of kind of the bicultural nature of Moses. Moses is like a whatever, Korean-American, Chinese-American, right? Hispanic-American that immigrated or grew up in a family that immigrated but is living in the States. There's some sort of identity awareness that comes up in Moses, right? He gets to that age where he's like, who am I? 
And those, like college, that was for me. Like I actually thought I was Caucasian, right? In high school, people. I'm kind of joking, but it's like I'm not white. What? Right? I'm different. What? And in college, that that became that became the, uh, more and more of a live issue for me. I was dating a, a, a young girl, in fact, my freshman year in college, and we we're hanging out with friends. And I just mentioned, oh, sometimes I feel a little different, that I don't fit in. I went to Whitman College. There wasn't a lot of people who looked like me at Whitman College in Walla Walla, Washington. And she says, you know, I don't see you as different at all. You just kind of fit in with all of us. And to a certain extent, it's like, that's kind of comforting. But on a deeper level, it's like, that's not true. That's just not true, right? And so that began my journey in college of like, now why am I getting angry in classes, right? When something, someone's, a teacher says something or a student makes a comment. Or why am I running out of these intervarsity large groups and, and like Bible studies feeling like not a part of things, like wanting to run away. And it was because I was wrestling with that what was coming up in me was this anger and frustration. Who am I? I'm different, but I've been assimilating and trying to fit in this whole time, but now all I have is frustration. And Moses, I can tell, you can read, I mean, it's not explicitly written, but he's in Pharaoh's court, right? He's Pharaoh's... Daughter's, uh, he's Pharaoh's adopted nephew. Nephew. No, grandson. But he's angry enough when he witnesses the injustice, when he sees the oppression of an Egyptian beating a fellow Hebrew, it says, that he's upset. This sense of injustice, this righteous anger. I see oppression in front of me, and it's oppression against my people. And he's upset, right? And then he's confronted with the dominant culture, Pharaoh. He's confronted with the fear of, what if I'm found out? I just exacted violence against an Egyptian. So I played my cards. What if I'm found out? And so he flees to Midian. And he kind of like forgets about things. I'm going to go live with his family, marry. He lived there for many, many years, actually, before God's call. And so there's this identity piece. If you, want, if you go through Exodus again, there's this identity piece that's going on. And this is really essential, I feel, to the interpretation of this passage. Because what God, who God is calling is Moses. He needs his leader to lead his people. And in Exodus 3, he says, go to Pharaoh and say, release my firstborn Israel. Release my firstborn Israel. Right? If you do not, he says, I'll send some plagues. He'll be hard-hearted. If he does not, tell him, I will take your firstborn. So this theme of firstborn Right, is running throughout these chapters and through God's interaction with Pharaoh. 
The second theme is this, the separation, right, of God's chosen people um, from the people of Egypt, right, from other people, set apart, right? God's people are set apart. God's people are elect. God's people are chosen. And because you're set apart, elect, and chosen, you live differently. And in those days, um, all the way back to Genesis 12, the covenant with Abraham, what it meant to to distinguish yourself from the rest of the peoples of the world as God's people was what? What covenant? The covenant of circumcision, buckskinism. (laughs) This is too awkward. I should just use the word. (laughs) Um, The covenant of circumcision. And so that was the unique identifier. That saying, God... You know, I'm making, God is making these promises. I will be your God. You will be my people. And this is what marks you as my people. And I think the modern reader, us reading this from our times back, it's hard, right, for us to be like, oh, God has had an elect people. God had a chosen people. Like, that's not fair. That's not inclusive. That sounds very exclusive, like a chosen people. Well, first thing, and this is a professor talked to me a lot about this, is like um, the people of Israel aren't chosen by God because they're special, right? They're these great, like, exemplary people, right? If you read through the Old Testament, it's actually a story of dysfunction, right? All of, like, the, the patriarchs, the heroes of the Bible, they're not heroes of the Bible. Maybe in Sunday school, we're like, oh, Abraham. Father Abraham had many sons and daughters. (laughs) It's not that they're the heroes and exemplary. It's that they're they're sinners. They're even like worse than the people around them. They're dysfunctional. They take on multiple wives. They, you know, Abraham like denies his wife and says, calls her his sister because he's afraid. It's like what, what, like integrity, right? Is there any accountability going on? Does, is Abraham in any accountability groups? Like, what kind of man is he? <laughs> they're not, it's not because they're exemplary in any way. And sometimes we just have to accept that God chooses who he chooses. Right? And it's because it's God's volition. Because God did so. But God doesn't choose to say, ha ha, it's the elite golden group. Right? God chooses so he can bless everyone. That's the testimony of scripture. And then when we get to the new covenant, that opens up, right? In the New Testament, in Acts, it opens up. Like he fills that out. The Holy Spirit fills that out a lot more. But God's intention is not, ha ha. I only want the elite with me, my inner circle, right? Because they're awesome. They're premier soccer players, right? <laughs> I've just been in the middle of soccer, parents, because my son plays soccer, and it's, it's crazy. So I'll just say that. And I'm one of the crazy ones. Um, <laughs> um, So yeah, to the modern reader, it's hard for us. But the reason why in the Old Testament, I think God put a lot of, like law is important, 
and ritual is very important and boundaries are important is again, it's about identity. In a place where there are so many people, so many cultures, so many things, in a place where maybe people have forgotten God's covenant, right? God, their relationship with God. Or maybe, like with Abraham, it's this new thing out of nowhere. Like, we never hear like there's this relationship between God and Abraham. God just calls Abraham out, out of his parents' country, right? So this, it's like an infancy of faith. And in that infancy, just as we would teach a child and a teenager about boundaries and rules, and the rules would be more set. God is establishing boundaries. What sets you apart from the other people? Like, what makes you different? You are my prophetic people. So you, I want you to live this way. I want you to be with one another in this way so that you would be salt, so that you'll be a witness, so that you'll be a blessing. Are you with me, church? This same professor, Dr. Frank Spina, actually wrote a book called Faith of the Outsider, which is an amazing book. It's like one of my favorite books because he goes through different characters in scripture that are Gentiles or outside of the God's chosen people. But these outsiders actually teach the insiders what it really means to be God's people. Does that make sense? So you have Rahab, you have Tamar. Um, he talks about uh, the woman at the well, right? These outsiders who actually through their faith help the people of Israel to recognize their own faith and more strongly commit to what it means to be God's people. And so again, there's this inclusion and exclusion happening in the Bible, exclusion, inclusion. And if God wants to do what he wants to do, he's going to do with what he's going to do. Amen? And we, as people, we want rules, right? We want rules. We want this to say, this is what it means to be inside, and this is what it means to be outside. And it's complicated, right? It's difficult. We must be set apart. And yet... We're going to have our minds blown by who are actually the faithful ones. And that's the testimony of Scripture. So, again, it's not about knowing everything. It's about mystery, right, and trusting in God and depending, a conscious dependence on the Holy Spirit. And at the same time, when you are following Jesus, when you are a disciple of Christ, you got to believe your life is going to start changing, right? You're, you got to believe he's going to start picking out things in your life and saying, and using people to say, what about this in your life? That's, that's got to go. That's got to change because we're being renewed by God for the renewal of our neighborhoods. We're being transformed by God, right? Yes, we're saved by grace. Um, but also, that same power of grace in us is the power to change us, amen? amen? To transform us. And we can't deny that. We can't deny the healing power of God. 
we can't deny the changing power of God. So sit in that, the inside and the outside, the inclusion and the exclusion, because it's really like when we walk that, it becomes less about rules and more about um, one writer wrote a book and it's escaping my mind. But it's, and he writes about it, following Jesus is like improvisational theater. Like the older you get, it's more about improv. The younger you are, it's about reading the script, right? And so I like to say, as a preacher, I'm not a, you know, some preachers write out the manuscript and read the manuscript. I'm an advanced preacher, right? I don't even have notes. I don't even have my notes. Like, oh, it blacked out, but then the screensaver came back. I'm just kidding. Improvisation. Like, the deeper we are in relationship with God, the more that we know it's not about the commandments or the rules, but it's about discernment, right? It's about relationship. It's about what does this mean in this situation right here? Are you with me, church? Can I get an amen? Amen. 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 So as I look at it, as a poet and English major, I look at the imagery and the common imagery and the context of things. And we see that before this, God talks about the firstborn, right? God is going to release, or God is going to uh, take away the firstborn of Pharaoh if he doesn't release this thing, right? And if you remember, Moses himself is a firstborn, right? Is a firstborn son who was saved, right? He was going to his death. He was condemned to death, but he was saved by the waters, right? And if you remember afterwards, you remember the play or the curse of the firstborn, how are the people of Israel like saved? How are the sons of Israel saved? Do you remember? Passover. Passover, exactly. So it's the Passover. Put the blood of a sacrificed lamb. Good job. That's what. <laughs> and put it on your doorpost, and the angel of death will pass you by. Right? It's the sacrifice of blood. And so there's a connection there that people make. Right? As Zipporah is saying, "You are the bridegroom of blood to me." Right? You are the bridegroom of blood to me. It's saying, right? It's pointing to both backwards and forwards to. Christ, right? The salvation in the blood of the Lamb. The Passover points to that. Um, what separates these sons from those sons, the Egyptians from the, from the Israelites, is this blood covenant, right? Salvation through the blood. So my take is it would naturally follow that as Moses is going to Egypt, they're staying at an inn, but that night God comes to confront. It's, I would say, I lean towards it's Moses' son, right? Saying, I've, I've called you, Moses. I've called you to be a leader. I'm about to send you into Egypt to talk about the curse of the firstborn, 
right? The plagues. But you haven't even made that distinction in your life yet. Does that make sense? You haven't even done that. How can you go into that situation and lead my people in that situation if you haven't fully stepped over? Right? You had your woke moment, right? Oh, an Egyptian was oppressing a Hebrew, and you're like, oh, I'm going to beat up that Egyptian because I'm a Hebrew too. I'm woke. Justice. But like I said last week, you're not justice and wokeness isn't fully there unless Jesus Christ is a part of that. Right? That's, That's the fullness of justice. And so he's saying, Moses, you're kind of straddling the fence. You're still working through your identity issues. And we know sociologists and psychologists talk about, you know, immigrants and the bicultural person. They talk about different stages of identity, racial identity development, right? You go from assimilation to, if you know people who are like, like I know people who are like, ah, Korean people. I'm white, right? I'm white. And then they're like, the next thing you know, they're putting up Korean flags in their room. They get to college and they're like, look at my Korean flags and K-drama and Forget all those other people. I'm Korean to the core. Angry Koreans. (laughs) Right? And then somewhere along the way you get, okay, I love me, I love them. We're different, but we can get along. Right? That's kind of a full progression of identity. Moses is is in that process. And God's point is, take on the full, fullness of covenant with me. And we don't know, some commentators say Zipporah, because he's married to a foreigner, a non-Hebrew, Zipporah is saying, no, I'm not going to have my son do that. And that may be the case. Or Moses is the one who just, you know, he doesn't care. He's like, no big deal, I'm rolling right, in, the, in the land of foreigners. Either way, right, Moses and Zipporah should both kind of step into that together. And actually, if the story is, yeah. But then it's Zipra, in this case, it's Zipra who takes the initiative, does the deed, and, and intercedes on behalf of Moses, right, or her son. God is going to mess things up, or God is upset, and Zipra says, no. And she takes an initiative, does it, right? And says, Moses, my people is your people, right? We are in, we're in it. It's like we're blood brothers. Let's cut our wrists and like put them together. Except it was buckskin. (laughs) So, So Zipporah actually fits in with the faith of the outsider motif, right? Here's Zipporah teaching Moses what it means to be God's person in God's family. And like, let me do that for you. Let me show you. Let's, let's sell out for this. And I actually want to stick, end with that idea. If you can have the, what's the takeaway? 
What's the takeaway? Um, the takeaway is we vouch, this is a painting of Zipporah, we vouch for people. Right? Zipporah vouches for Moses and her son even when he was about to get canceled by God. Our faith and walk is not simply an individual endeavor. There's a lot of times in the New Testament where this person and their whole household come to believe. And so there's a collective identity in, in the biblical narrative, in the culture, that we don't quite understand the depth of that, right? We tend to lean towards, it's our own individual faith. It's my own prayer life. It's my own, this, it's my own choice. But our faith and walk is not our individual endeavor. We are surrounded by a community. We're surrounded by a cloud of witnesses. Um, just an example, baptism, and we're part of the evangelical covenant denomination. Uh, baptism in the covenant church, actually back in the 1800 days, um, baptism was like, it's almost, baptism was almost like human sexuality back, back then. It's like division, right, over baptism. People would like splinter and schism and new denominations would be formed because of baptism, um, specifically infant baptism and believer's baptism, baptism as an adult, right? And many of us come from different you know, backgrounds, Presbyterian, infant baptism, right? Baptist church, no, <laughs> right? Um, and Magdion Udio will, will talk about, oh, in Mexico, baptism or infant baptism, there's no, reconciling that because it's Catholicism versus Protestantism, right? It's like, that's not good. And so that, I mean, as a side note, in our denomination, as more Latinos and Hispanic churches are coming into our denomination, that's a huge tension because what the covenant chose was we will do both and so that we won't be divided, Right? And uh, so as a covenant pastor, I, one of my vows or what I signed to as an ordained pastor is if, someone, if one of you came and said, baptize my infant, I'd be like, I have to say yes. I, yes. If another person says, you know, baptize my teenager, yes. And of course, I can have a leaning, right? I grew up Southern Baptist, so I'm like, believer's baptism, yo! It ain't real until you choose it. Uh, but I, I'm like, okay, if someone wants their infant baptized, yeah. I've yet to do one, but I'm waiting for one. And then COVID hit, we had a bunch of babies. COVID hit, and I lost my chance. <laughs> Anne and Alex. Um, where was I? Uh, the takeaway. Oh, our faith is not a, our own. So when you think about infant baptism, the child isn't cognizant of, we, the child can't say, I believe in Jesus Christ, so baptize me, right? What is it about? It's about the community of faith, the parents, 
the church coming around the baby and saying, we carry the faith of this child along with it through its life. We commit to, to surrounding this child. And so it's a recognition. One, it's a more sacramental view of baptism, but it's also a recognition that it's a communal event, right? Where the baby can't make a choice, we carry it in those times, right? And we're also committing to those teenage rebel years too, right? To step in and intercede on this child's behalf. It's the same way with um, baptism. It's the same way with weddings, right? We surround this couple. You've probably been to a wedding that says, people out there, raise your hand uh, to the couple and commit to, we commit to surrounding this couple and holding them accountable and loving them on their journey, right? It's the faith of the community. And then another sacrament of the church, Eucharist, right? Communion. That's totally the family table. Right? I, I don't know if you've ever seen, I mean, you could take communion by yourself, but like, communion, <laughs> come, come. I'm pretty sure that, that root is the same as community, family, right? Group. <clears throat> so we vouch for people, right? And I tell my staff all the time, you know what? The safe thing is to use rules to reject someone. The risky thing is to vouch for them, right? To take a risk. You know, I see something in that person. And even though they have a messed up past, right? I'm going to take them in. I'm going to walk with them. And you know what? That's the path of heartbreak. Like my record since I've planted Renew is like two for 37, right? On vouching for leaders and taking risks on them. I've lost a lot of people, right? It's heartbreaking. But we vouch for people just like Zipporah vouches for her son and for Moses. Don't, don't, don't stop this. I'm here. And connected to that is, as the people of God, we inter- is intercessory prayer, is the power of prayer. We intercede for people. This is, Zipporah's action is, is indicative, uh, is like an intercession, right? She stands between God and Moses, God and her son, and says, don't. Don't. Right? And Moses does the same thing when God is like, I'm done with these people after the golden calf, right? I'm leaving it. And Moses is like, no. Like, if your presence doesn't go with us, we ain't going. Please. And God's like, okay. The power of intercession on behalf of other people. We pray and we intercede. And that means something that has effect, right? I don't know how it works. It's a mystery that the, you know, the inner workings of God changing his mind or whatever. But when we pray, it matters. <clears throat> and finally, we advocate for people. 
We step in because it's the right thing to do, right? Step in because it's the just thing to do. We step in. Uh, Zipporah takes proactive initiative because she's, right? She has a heart for Moses. She has a heart for Gershom. And we have hearts for people out there. And we advocate. We pray. We vouch. Are you with me, church? That's my, that's my takeaway. Um, Zipporah intercedes on behalf of Moses. And this has big consequences. Right? Big effect in the freeing of the people. She's my hero of the Bible. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you um, that um, in the midst of confusion, in the midst of not understanding, um, your Holy Spirit moves and your community is interacting with scripture. And yeah, um, you're going to do what you want to do in our hearts. And I pray that you water the seeds planted today as we continue to wrestle with scripture. And as we say, I don't know that that's the beginning of new things and renewal. In your name, amen.